Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. And today we are talking fiscal policy. I wrote. We'll get some actual, yeah, keep you that in, uh, or replacing it with some actual air horns. We are talking fiscal policy because the government, uh, to very little fanfare, released its fall economic statement, which provided an update on the province's finances and continued to affirm that Ontario did not ever, in fact, have a $15 billion deficit. Uh, We're also going to continue talking liberal leadership, but first, a little bit of housekeeping. We are releasing our third liberal leadership candidate interview with Mitzi Hunter this week. It is available right now on any place you can access Ontario Loud. So uh, if you haven't heard that yet, take a listen. We talked to our former boss about the race itself, some of the turmoil in our education system, and what advice she would have to Minister Stephen Lecce. It was a great discussion. It was great to talk to Mitzi. She poked a bit of fun at Sam, which I always support. But uh, Alexi, in our last episode, you, Sam, and I talked about the state and the race and actually got a few feedback from the folks in different camps about our coverage. I'm sure they were all positive, though, right? The feedback? Most people, uh, (laughs) it was a very hamburger kind of thing, being like, loved the episode, slight quibble with what you said here. Uh, And so, (laughs) of course, but uh, very friendly, but uh, some good corrections, actually, in describing this sort of very complicated process. So a few things we want to clarify. So the deadline to register and declare candidacy in the leadership race is November 25th, not December 2nd. I think we accidentally completed the candidacy deadline if you want to jump in to be in this race with the deadline to sign up new members, which is December 2nd. We also mentioned that each riding is association elects three men, three women, and youth to the convention. It is actually four. And I think we said that past federal MPs can be delegates to the leadership convention. It is only past provincial MPPs that can be and current federal MPs. So it's still hundreds of people. <laughs> it's still a lot of people, but it's good to be accurate. It's good to be accurate, even though, yeah, that probably doesn't affect our previous conversation uh, in terms of the the uh, issues we were discussing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's still a lot of people who aren't actually elected that get to make uh, choices, and the process is, is still extremely complex. We also got a few comments, though, about how to describe where everyone is in this race. And that's actually a really interesting question. Like, how to look at this race and how to assess how people are doing is tricky, but there are are potentially a few ways to do it. So if you're an outsider looking in, how do you tell who is ahead and who has a real shot uh, in this race and who does not? That is a really good question. Um, Obviously, the first thing you should do is go to your favorite podcast uh, app and download Ontario Loud, which will uh, fill in all of these uh, these important important questions. Um, but no, seriously, it, it's it's probably way too early to even have uh, too much of a sense. And the way that the um, that this process is set up with the delegated convention and uh, people being knocked off in different ballots and delegates moving to support other candidates, uh, it's very, very difficult to predict these things. We also don't have any you know polling for this kind of stuff. Uh, we don't even know who how many people are going to be eligible to vote for delegates. And so it's very early for a number of reasons. Plus, uh, the rules make it such that it's very, very hard to predict what will happen on the at the end of the day. That said, there are some basic ways we can look at this. So, uh, you know, public fundraising is one way to get a sense of enthusiasm for campaigns, as well as who has a little bit of money to use to create collateral for their campaigns and to to advertise a little bit with targeted advertising, things like that. And then endorsements is another tool that people use, and a lot of the candidates have been posting their endorsements, whether from other you know former MPPs or just from individual Ontarians who. Uh, who want to endorse them. Um, So I think, Chris, maybe we get into that a little bit more. And at this point in the race, without seeing everyone's actual platforms and 
getting a sense of sort of what messages seem to be resonating, even from our own little bubbles. It's probably too early to say more than than fundraising and, and endorsements at this point. Yeah, I think it's really important for listeners to understand that this is not like the democratic process in the states where there's like, you know, consistent polling of Iowa and that can tell you who's going to do well in Iowa, which might tell you who's going to do well in sort of moving on throughout the race. Like you can kind of get into that because there's just such a wealth of more information. This is like a much more opaque process. And so I did a little bit of looking uh, into the fundraising. It's interesting, actually. It's really cool. Elections Ontario requires all of the candidates to post any donation they get uh, to their public database within 10 days of receiving that donation. So we can actually get pretty current fundraising totals. So as of today, which we're recording uh, November 17th, I saw Stephen Del Duca leading in fundraising in both the overall amount race. He's raised over $180,000 from 170 donations and an average donation size of just a little over $1,000. Michael Coteau following that up with $94,000 raised from about 118 individual donations with an average size of $800. Kate Graham had about $67,000 raised from 111 donations and her average donation size is smaller. So $667 is her average donation. Uh, Alvin's at 64000 from 68 donations. Average donation size of a uh, thousand and McMissy Hunter is at forty six thousand uh, dollars from forty six donations, um, average size of eight hundred fifty dollars. So in the campaign period, you can tell that Stephen is clearly leading in fundraising, and you can kind of get a stratification here. But we, I think, when I sent this to the group chat that we have, and it, it, you sort of look at maybe Alvin or Mitzi, and you're like, okay, like. Uh, or even Kate, and you say like we're you know two weeks away from when they need to have a lot of fundraising done to even stay in the race. Like, are some of these candidates going to need to drop out? And then when we looked at the rules, it is a little bit more complicated than that because if a candidate can actually raise a bunch of money before the campaign period officially starts and give it to the Liberal Party to pay their fee. And that is never reported to Elections Ontario. So it is also, I think, important to take these numbers with a grain of salt, because I think it's a good, maybe a good proxy for, you know, in the period where these people have been declared, the number of people who've been willing to donate, it's like maybe a proxy for enthusiasm, but like it actually does not tell you how much money these candidates might have sitting in the bank. Right. Yeah, that's that's super important. Uh, and it sounds like from talking to people who are supporting the various candidates that everybody is going to make, I think it's $85,000 cut off in the next deadline in the next couple of weeks, even if they're only showing like Mitzi Hunter $46,000 in donations. Uh, and as you said, the time period that we're tracking these donations is not consistent across the candidates. So it, it, it depends on when they announce and officially register with Elections Ontario. The benefit of doing that early is that once you've registered and once you're publicly disclosing these donations, you can entice people to donate because your donations will be eligible for tax credits, which are very, very generous for these kinds of things. Uh, so there's benefits to declaring and raising money that people can then claim on their taxes. However, you do have to, to disclose it once you, once you declare that. So if you have people supporting your campaign who are able to contribute large amounts of money, much above the limits that are set out uh, by elections, Ontario, for example, there it is possible for candidates to raise uh, huge amounts of money, even from one individual, before they declare their candidacy and their check to the Ontario Liberal Party for their eighty-five thousand dollars. Then I think it's another fifteen thousand in January that they they'll owe. That can just say it's coming directly from you. So the the Liberal Party itself will never know uh, where the money is coming from that you've raised. It's uh, an interesting system. I think we've talked about this before, but um, increasing the transparency, especially in that period before people have donated, might be something that uh, the government and, and Elections Ontario needs to look at. Absolutely. Really adds a lot of 
credence to me to sort of like the opacity of actually being able to know who is doing well. Yeah, that's true. It certainly looks like Steven Del Duca is way out in front by these numbers, though. So, I mean, I think I think we do have to recognize that even if there's a lot of money in some of these campaigns that uh, we don't know about, um, $180,000 compared to the next closest being 94, um, people would have to be raising a lot of money themselves before they uh, declared to be uh, catching up with uh, with Del Duca. Absolutely. And I I've, like I think I said before, it is still, I think, a good maybe proxy for enthusiasm. Like there's a, you know, during the campaign period, um, number of Donations, sort of particularly, yeah. You sort of see Stephen Del Duca, Michael Cotto as a as a challenger. Kate, I think, is really interesting in that her short time she's been in the in the race with 111 donations. They're of a smaller size, so they haven't gotten her as close as some of the other candidates to the hundred thousand dollar fundraising cap. But interesting sort of campaign to watch. I think the other thing maybe to touch on briefly is endorsements. These I find a little bit less meaningful because there's different mixes of people you can look at endorsement strength like the profile of the person who's endorsing or sort of like sheer volume so i only had a chance to sort of corral the volume as opposed to sort of the endorsement strength uh, in the lead up to this episode but steven del duca has again in the in the lead with 160 individual endorsement on his website um, michael Cotto has 61 kate graham has 26 alvin has uh, 16 and mitzi hunter has 14 on our website so in terms of reinforcing maybe that stratification that we see at the fundraising that same sort of rank order of the candidates it was interesting to me how it was replicated in the endorsements uh, as well yeah definitely as you said the the profiles uh, of these endorsements um, are different and that that's important as well. Um, the other thing to think about is uh, the regional nature of the race. So because every uh, riding is sending delegates uh, and some of the ridings uh, will have very few liberals compared to others in them, candidate can uh, can you know not look like they have a ton of endorsements, not look like they're fundraising a lot. But if they are able to lock up a lot of support, especially in some of those smaller ridings or ridings with fewer liberals, let's say, or um, if they have a regional strategy where they're able to lock up a whole bunch of ridings in uh, certain areas, like let's say in the north, let's say your campaign very much appeals to, to, to rural Ontario voters, let's say, you can end up um, competing above what the strength looks like on paper uh, at the convention just because of, um, of those kinds of strategies where other people maybe have split uh, more urban votes, let's say. So it, there's all kinds of, um, of other ways to look at this thing, and we just won't know how that pans out for quite some time. Wanted to like put some metrics on the liberal leadership discussion, but I, I do want to emphasize before we, we leave this that, you know, that sort of stratification that we were talking about, you know, that gives us maybe a proxy to see how people are doing right now. But going back to your point at the beginning, it is all of this can change um, because it is a delegated convention and it is up to there's so much that we that we don't know that it is really easy to see many ways that a candidate like Michael Coteau or Kate Graham or uh, Alvin or really any of them could significantly improve their position in the race uh, between now and the convention. Like there's just so many ways that can happen. So moving on, uh, maybe from politics to policy, the provincial government announced now, I guess, a few weeks back, their fall economic statement. And because it is a fairly major event in the government's budget cycle, it might be worth touching on briefly. So quick reminder for listeners that might not follow the government's fiscal cycle super closely. The fall economic statement is, of course, a fall update on what the, how the government is doing on its budget goals. Over time, it has kind of evolved into a kind of mini budget where the government can announce some new things. And if it feels like it needs to, which can be helpful politically for a government, it's 
especially a government that is struggling politically as much as this one. So on November 6th, Minister Rod Phillips announced that the government would be reducing its projected deficit to $9 billion from the $10.3 billion outlook presented in the 2019 budget, while investing an additional $1.3 billion in services. It also announced a package of small changes aimed at reducing red tape, reducing corporate income tax from a whopping 3.5% to 3.2%, reducing the aviation fuel tax in the north, uh, so it's uh, less expensive to move things up around there, and a bunch of administrative changes they say the government will will help the government save money or reduce red tape. So Alexi, just curious, what are your sort of big takeaways from from, uh, FES this year? I think from a communications perspective, my big takeaways would be that the government seems to be getting better at this. Uh, The last FES last year, um, they approached with with much more of the sort of, we just won an election, look at this... um, the, you know, they had a lot of swagger. They definitely sort of still saw themselves as God's gift to Ontario. And you could tell from the way that they packaged things, the tone of the documents, that has sort of shifted to much more of, I guess, what I would call the kind of fall economic statements and budgets that we are more familiar with from previous governments, uh, which are much more uh, sober in tone and have more of a, I find a more of a sense of, of governing and less of always the political language that we were seeing from them at first, um, which I think is good for them. And, you know, maybe not as good for the people who are pushing back on on these these documents. They also, I think, didn't, they resisted the temptation to try to shove a bunch of new stuff into the fall economic statement. And in fact, I think there's a lot of stuff stuff that's happening that they didn't mention. Uh, so that was interesting. Uh, there's uh, news articles have come out in the last little bit, especially around social policy, which is uh, one of the areas where the government is doing the most or wants to do the most in terms of the financial situation of the the government. Um, so reminding people that in the last budget, they projected that they'd be making pretty deep cuts uh, into social services over the next three or four years. And they've sort of started to roll some of those things back. So those are areas to watch. Um, but uh, you know, right after Fez was dropped, the government also announced, for example, they're no longer going to be requiring municipalities to uh, homelessness counts in the short term anyway. And that did not make it into the fall economic statement, for example. So there are certainly the fall economic statement is a bunch of things that they they want people to be thinking about and talking about, um, but there's a lot going on that isn't in there. And I think that's the most important piece to to think about from um, assessing it as a whole. Yeah, there is a real danger, I think, for the opposition of not recognizing that this government, I think, is getting better at positioning these kinds of things. I remember actually hearing reporters talk about covering Fez, and they were looking through the document, looking for the cuts and the fact that there weren't sort of massive new cuts in this document was the headline. And I I think it sort of came out quite well. And if you let that be the narrative, then the Ford government wins on the expectations game uh, because they started just by setting expectations so low. But there was a lot of stuff in this fall economic statement that was pretty problematic. I mean, if you sort of peel back to those pages and some of those red tape reductions, some of that comes with like a, you know, a really potentially dangerous price tag. Uh, they are moving to allow a greater number of college international partnerships. So these are things where colleges can partner with a private provider to bring in international students. And the private educator, private provider will charge students the money, give students the education under the college's name. Those international students will typically pay a really, really high price and get the college's degree, but it's not actually the college delivering the program. There's huge quality assurance and huge quality of program delivery programs. You know, kids basically being brought from all over the world to Ontario and getting kind of ripped off in some cases. It's like these little like red tape production things are, are really worth paying attention to. And yeah, huge implications. I mean, it's a form of privatization of, of college education in a lot of ways, right? At least for for certain students who um, who are accessing them through through these private, private colleges. And um, as you said, 
oversight is is difficult. Um, and you, I think the naming rights of the ghost Go Transit was another one that you um, you'd mentioned. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There was yeah. There was, there's some things that were like uh, I think just a little silly and will be annoying. Like I, you know, when I get off at uh, Rexall presents Markham Go Station <laughs> to visit my parents, I'm uh, I'm sure I will be thinking about uh, the Ford government a lot. And there were there was you know a couple of uh, of good things. I think the government uh, is expanding the Fun Pass program, which lets uh, families uh, with kids access uh, museums and, and other cultural establishments for for free. Uh, which is a great idea. It's a successful program, and they're just basically going to expand it, which is which is good. There was a, a mention of the a new premier's advisory council on competitiveness, which is interesting um, because anybody who's been following, uh, I guess, competitiveness policy uh, and uh, that sort of that that file in Ontario over the last few years will know that um, we had a very good Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity already established in Ontario, which the government has just defunded, uh, and they were doing excellent work. And so it's uh, kind of ironic that now they realize, hey, maybe we need some advice on being competitiveness. Let's create a Premier's Advisory Council. So that's just two steps backward, one step forward, I guess, with this government. And then first ever assessment of how climate change will affect Ontario's economy, infrastructure, communities, public health and safety, and ecosystems. That one caught my eye. Yeah, that was a, a huge surprise uh, to me. Are you kidding me? Like, w- suddenly this government's going to pretend that they care about how climate change affects all these things in Ontario. And they're going to say, oh, yeah, it's the first ever because this government's really leading the way on climate change. Like, come on. It was just a little too much for me. A little too much for me. The mental gymnastics that are required because actually like doug ford has said he believes in climate change acknowledges its existence but then to not think that you know a price on carbon has any role in that um but i mean you know good that something is happening i guess um i'm curious alexi in terms of what this says about the, the sort of the fiscal picture and you talked about we talked a little bit about competitiveness there were some really interesting takeaways i think the government is able to reduce its deficit picture, not make massive cuts, which I think really speaks to the strength of the economy right now in Ontario. And uh, yeah, curious for some of your sort of maybe fiscal takeaways from this economic statement. Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. Uh, as we saw with the uh, public accounts that came out um, looking backward to 2018-19 and, and showed a huge increase in revenue, um, the government's uh, mid-year numbers for 2019 are also showing uh, quite a, 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 a healthy increase in revenue. So originally the projecting about 154 and now we're at almost 156 uh, so it's almost 2 billion in additional revenue a little bit under uh, and then at the same time uh, interest on debt uh, projections have decreased by about 400 million dollars so putting those two things together you have some you have uh, some good money to uh, to play around with uh, and most of that flex they seem to have put toward uh, reducing the deficit so that's why the deficit number dropped by 1.3 billion it leaves you with a little bit of extra money uh, which they've put into programs so program spending is going up from about a uh, 150 to 151 billion as a result uh, of changes they've made over the course of this year so that's one of the big takeaways um, the the headline number that they tried to sell was that they're investing 1.3 billion in in services. Uh, that is actually closer. It's closer to actually about half of that. And the reason for that is that um, much of those quote unquote new investments are um, money that they had in the contingency fund, which is on the program side already. And so they've simply um, allocated some of that now, but they were always planning theoretically to spend that uh, on programs. And so um, the in terms of the new money that is planned to be spent on programs, it's it's a little over half of, of that headline number. Well, I think it's maybe just worth uh touching on like for a second the 
they uh, will try to sort of sell this as their stewardship of the economy. But there are there's a lot of they had a very sort of fortunate set of economic circumstances that led them in like the corporate income tax came in so much higher than uh, they were projecting. And the interest situation is in response to sort of global economic precarity. So if we actually face a a slowdown, we're going to see this government's room to maneuver really drastically reduced. So it's a, I kind of can't help but think like, did they get a little bit lucky here? If things worsen a little bit on the global financial outlook and the global market, they'll have to make some fairly major changes to how they govern. They won't sort of be able to make this, we're reducing the deficit and also spending a little bit more, keeping everyone happy trade-off. Yeah, I completely agree, and 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 it's not it's not as if the liberal government also didn't benefit from that. Uh, I mean, the 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 previous liberal government managed to to balance the budget uh, for a hot minute, um, basically through through revenue growth and um, uh, and just keeping a somewhat lid on program spending over time, uh, and that seems to be increasingly the the what we're seeing from this government too. And so, so I would totally agree with you. And it's interesting. Uh, you know this um, this carbon tax that's apparently going to kill jobs and put Ontario into a recession. Well, all of the government's own fiscal projections suggest that that is in fact not the case. So I don't know where this carbon tax recession uh, that we've been talking about is, but uh, it's apparently not a real thing when the government uh, and the government has now admitted that. <laughs> so, um, in terms of what they are spending money on, in terms of the major sectors, if you're looking at healthcare, education, what can you expect in the in the months ahead? I think that the headline uh, takeaway here is that, as we've heard um, in announcements that have come out over the sort of the last month or so leading up to the f- uh, fall economic statement, the government has backtracked su- substantially on its plans to uh, take uh, take an axe to the uh, children and social services sector. Uh, so in the budget, they were projecting spending uh, only six point seven billion in that area this year, down from uh, over seventeen billion last year. Uh, and actually, now they're um, projecting uh, another six hundred million they'll be spending in that area as a result of basically changing their minds about cuts that they had previously said. So um, uh, they'll, they'll no longer be, um, at least in the short term, making some of these uh, these deep cuts, which is good uh, in the areas of social assistance. For example, it, they reversed their uh, they reversed their changes to the earnings exemptions. They reversed the elimination of the transition child benefit, um, and it's some of this is probably also driven by um, uh, changes in uh, just projections for that program because it is an entitlement program so you you know you pay everyone who comes to the door um but uh that's a big change Uh, a lot of how they were planning to balance the budget was going to be by uh steadily cutting uh services for children and um and people in need and uh at least so far we haven't actually seen that happen so what i'm interested to see is what happens in the the next budget, the 2020 budget, and whether they've simply pushed out those savings or uh, if they've actually changed their tune and they're going to find a, a different way to get to balance uh, other than uh, going after the children and social services sector. Um, we did hear recently, of course, that uh, they they put out an RFP for a, a contract to get a, a, a consultant in to look at the developmental services sector, which is another piece in children and social services that we don't talk about a lot, but this is services for adults with developmental disabilities, uh, a group that is um, uh, in great need and is uh, not talked about as much as, for example, children with uh, developmental disabilities. Um, And so um, this is a sector that drastically needs more money, not less. And the idea that they're going to, uh, you know, squeeze out 
any kind of savings from that sector in a way that isn't going to hurt people when the vast majority of the money just goes directly to helping people. Um, it's uh, it is crazy to me, but um, we'll see what uh, we'll see what comes of all that. Yeah, it is really interesting to me um, when I look at you know they're spending more in on healthcare than they expected to spending more on education than they expected to they have you know made some cuts in post-secondary education um but they've you know signaled that that's uh there might be more to come there but they haven't signaled that as uh, as such and they've sort of reversed course on children's social services like i if they're going to keep their keep their sort of fiscal goals uh, i do wonder you know now that they've backtracked on so many parts of their plan where they are actually going to find those savings and if they even know uh, at this point then maybe the revenue uh, projections are rosy enough that they feel like uh, they don't need to to start cutting so deeply that if they just hold hold the line on spending rather than actually trying to find a billion dollars in savings out of children and social services that that extra billion can be made up for in uh, in revenue and it's certainly so far in the last couple of years anyway um, they've uh, exceeded their projections so it's not crazy to think that uh, if that continues to happen um, and the economy remains strong that they we might just be able to grow our way out of um, of this um, deficit uh, and of course. A large part of this deficit is still this unresolved issue with the Auditor General about um, pension assets, and so a good, you know, striking a deal uh, with uh, with the other sponsors of these pension plans to um, be able to recognize some of those assets on our books could make large parts of this deficit disappear very, very quickly. Which I'm sure the government would take credit for, even though the whole thing was on paper in the first place. So there's a lot of different paths to balance for this government in the next three or four years, um, and uh, barring some kind of fiscal calamity uh, or economic calamity. Um, I, I don't know that they. I don't know that they still think they they need to um, te- uh, tempt fate by uh, taking uh, such a draconian approach to public services. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. We have an exciting rest of 2019 planned for you with some conversations about affordable housing, about employment and training services, some policy files that don't get as much attention or light as they should. With some really exciting guests, so stay tuned for those in the next couple weeks. Ontario Loud is a podcast by Alexi White, Sam Andrew, Kate Hammer, and me, Chris Barton. Ontario Loud is mixed by Philip Askew and me sometimes. Social media is done by Aisha Anwar and Harmon Mundy. I want to acknowledge that we are recording on the traditional territories of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabe, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat peoples. Though the treaties that allow us to live on these territories have a problematic colonial history and are still alive today, and the Canadian society has forced Indigenous people to fight for their rights to this day. If you have thoughts on what you've heard on today's episode, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud or OntarioLoud.ca or OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. You can support us on Patreon for less than the price of a cup of coffee per day at OntarioLoud.ca. Also, review us in the iTunes store. It is super, super helpful. Thank you and see you next week.